0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the director of rheumatology talks about an exciting new trial of a drug that holds promise as a treatment for lupus.
1: It is a very safe intervention because it uses an amino acid that the body has constantly, so it's not foreign and doesn't cause any immunosuppression. Then we'll
0: hear from a doctor who cares for refugees about how they have been impacted by the pandemic.
2: We've been doing a lot of this outreach, but testing is really hard to find. Testing is hard for this population to access, to understand, and to follow up with, given the language barrier.
0: And we'll talk to a doctor about the effects of COVID-19 on the homeless population. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore how the pandemic has affected some vulnerable populations here in Syracuse, including refugees and the homeless. But first, the director of rheumatology tells about a national trial he is leading that will test a promising new treatment for lupus. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A physician scientist at Upstate is overseeing a clinical trial of a possible new oral treatment for lupus. Here to talk about that is Dr. Andres Pearl. He's the chief of rheumatology at Upstate and also a professor of microbiology and immunology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Pearl.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, first, for listeners who are not familiar with lupus, Uh, This is an autoimmune disease that affects one and a half million people in in the United States. What else can you tell us about the people it affects and how it's treated? Uh,
1: Lupus affects primarily females. Uh, The uh, frequency of lupus is about tenfold greater among females than males. Uh, It correlates with uh, uh, sexual maturity, usually starts in early teens among females and starts to wane after menopause. Uh, the most affected individuals are women in childbearing age and uh, Childbearing usually also is a trigger of the disease. Usually, uh, uh, females during pregnancy get flares of the disease, which indicates that it relates to hormones. Particularly, estrogen is known as an inducer of lupus. Let me
0: ask you this Does menopause um, improve lupus?
1: The most severe forms of lupus usually subside with menopause. So the severe cases tend to be young females uh, in their teens or twenties. Usually pregnancy brings out severe flares in lupus.
0: And so I've described it as an autoimmune disease, so that is your body's immune system malfunctioning, right?
1: Yes, yes. So lupus is a prototypical so-called systemic autoimmune disease, which means that the disease itself, the inflammation that occurs during the disease can involve almost any organ of the body. Most often the skin and the joints are involved. Uh, unknowingly, many patients suffer from kidney involvement as well. Inflammation of the kidney used to be a leading cause of morbidity and mortality. More recently, with the advent of uh, renal transplant, survival is better. Patients who have kidney involvement, uh, other organs can also be involved, such as the heart, the lung or the brain, and we don't have really good uh, replacements yet for those organs. And uh, therefore, treatment of disease and primarily prevention of flares is a critical aspect of uh, finding new treatments for this disease.
0: Now, what is a flare?
1: A flare is an uh, uh, increase of disease activity that typically occurs once or twice a year. Uh, people experience increased joint pain, rash, fevers. Sometimes they don't experience a flare. For example, when the kidney gets inflamed, they don't even know about it. And sometimes people present in renal failure and you can only see that the kidney stop functioning. For this very reason, because flares are sometimes silent, people need to see a rheumatologist or somebody experienced in lupus on a regular basis, so flares can be prevented or, or detected early and treated. Uh, therefore, having a rheumatologist uh, diagnose the disease early and monitor the patients frequently is an important part of uh, long-term care.
0: Wow, so you can't really predict a of, of flare isn't necessarily tied to the temperature outside or the stress level. You you can't always predict what's
1: Uh, happening. UV light is known to be an inducer, ultraviolet light. Uh, So this climate is actually not so bad for lupus uh, in the southern part of the United States, Florida, California, or Texas. Uh, Flares are more common in individuals who are susceptible to UV light. Uh, We have a number of laboratory markers that we typically employed to try to predict flares, which includes monitoring protein in the urine and a number of autoantibodies. As you pointed out, this is an autoimmune disease. So we diagnose the disease based on clinical symptoms as well as laboratory tests. We have a number of laboratory tests which indicate lupus, but some of them also indicate a likelihood of flare. And these are the individuals that we pay close attention to and what we're trying to do with treatments basically is not only control flares, but also to prevent flares.
0: So are there some treatments that are effective that are, that work for some patients right now?
1: The uh, five to ten year survival 30 years ago used to be 50 percent. So 50 percent of females at this young age died of lupus. The cause of death at that time used to be renal failure. That was the uh, main uh, cause of death, which is no longer the case. Uh, Today, the leading cause of death is actually infection. Uh, We are using immunosuppressive medications that suppress the autoimmune response. However, that exposes patients to infections. So most of the uh, immunosuppressive treatments have a broad uh, uh, level of immunosuppression, so the, the immune system is broadly suppressed so that they are unable to respond to most types of infections. The most uh, recent uh, so-called biological immunosuppressants are a lot more specific, and they have a narrower spectrum of immunosuppression, but yet they also predispose to infections. So we are constantly looking for relatively safe medications, which uh, target the disease based on so-called biomarkers. These are uh, causally related changes in the immune system that can be targeted safely, and uh, re- they are targeting results in disease control or preventing of flares. This is what, exactly what we're trying to do with this clinical trial that is, is coming online very soon.
0: So what is this potential new treatment that you're gonna be testing?
1: Uh, so this treatment uh, uses cysteine, which is a modified form of a natural amino acid cysteine. Acetylcysteine is more stable and uh, permeable, so one can take it uh, orally. It goes through uh, the cell membranes and gets into the cells of the, of the human body, which uh, have a deficiency of cysteine. Uh, we discovered a number of years ago that glutathione, which is a primary antioxidant, is specifically depleted in certain cells of the immune system in lupus patients called T cells. Not only glutathione, but its critical reducing amino acid component called cysteine is also depleted. Uh, And uh, treatment with acetylcysteine, we found during a a completed clinical trial, can normalize cysteine levels in lupus patients and can normalize glutathione levels. So this is directed to a biomarker, which drives the disease. And uh, it is a very safe intervention because it uses an amino acid that our body has uh, constantly, so it's not foreign. And doesn't uh, cause any immune suppression, so people are not predisposed to infection. So this is a very safe intervention.
0: And it's something that's already being used for other things, not for lupus, but for other.
1: It, yeah, this amino acid itself is available in health food stores. The quality of the material is not exactly the same, but very similar. cysteine is used uh, as an antidote for. Uh, Uh, interventions that cause oxidative stress. It's an antioxidant amino acid. The prime example is Tylenol overdose. Tylenol uh, 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 can cause liver damage and Tylenol-induced liver damage is the number one cause of acute liver failure uh, in developed societies. And the antidote for that is cysteine, which is given intravenously at very large doses and it can save people lives who have a a deficiency of gutathione or cysteine. It's also used to treat other types of toxicities, such as intravenous uh, contrast dyes that are used in certain imaging procedures. So this is FDA approved for these interventions. Also patients with cystic fibrosis use acetylcysteine in an inhaled form, can be inhaled vaporized. What we're planning to do here is use an oral formulation which is currently not available.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with rheumatologist and scientist, Dr. Andres Pearl, about lupus and an exciting new trial that's getting underway soon. I'd like to have you explain how the trial is going to work. It's been described as randomized, double-blind, and placebo controlled, but what, what does that mean?
1: Uh, this means that uh, this uh, trial will meet the highest uh, regulatory requirements and most uh, safety and uh, scientific uh, uh, rigor in terms of using placebo as a control so we won't be knowing who is treated with acetyl cysteine versus a dummy drug uh, placebo which is in our case will be a sugar dextrose Uh, The trial is designed in a way that uh, mimics uh, how patients would actually be treated with these medications. So it's an innovative design which uh, builds on an open label first phase, uh, which means that everybody would actually get acetylcysteine for three months, and we will be titrating to a dose that's tolerated. Uh, by the individuals between 2.4 and 4.8 grams per day. These dosages are based on a trial that we previously completed and showed preliminary evidence for efficacy, which is published, uh, which is already published. Patients who tolerate acetylcysteine for three months will be then randomized to continue this intervention for nine more months or switch to placebo. Neither the patients nor the doctors will know whether the patients continue on the medication or not. Uh, Another interesting aspect of the design is that patients who flare uh, during the randomization phase can be treated as needed. Uh, for their own benefit. If patients uh, require uh, treatment outside the trial, they will be considered a failure. The way we uh, judge efficacy is patients will have to improve and they cannot fail the treatment. So, in, uh, this way, uh, patients are safe to enroll in the trial. And if they fail and they happen to be in the placebo arm, that will increase our ability to discriminate in terms of efficacy. So uh, with this trial design, we can reduce the number of patients needed to uh, show efficacy uh, within one year.
0: So how many patients do you expect to enroll in this? And is it only at Upstate? Uh,
1: so this uh, this study uh, is powered uh, to show a difference between acetylcystine and placebo. Uh, at a relatively narrow uh, rate of efficacy. Uh, To achieve that, we have to enroll, uh, based on our calculation, 230 patients. Uh, These patients will be enrolled across the United States. Uh, Upstate is, this is the first trial that's organized from Upstate ever. And uh, we will have 20 centers participating across the United States. These are all academic medical centers, usually lupus centers, uh, where rheumatologists who uh, treat this disease are very familiar with lupus. So there's a lot of enthusiasm I am hearing. So we're hoping that it will be relatively straightforward to enroll the number of patients needed. I have to also mention that we follow here over 1,000 lupus patients. So we have the ability to enroll most of the patients or at least a large majority of the patients at Upstate.
0: If someone's interested in this, perhaps they should call uh, 1-315-464-1779 and find out if they qualify.
1: Right, right. So we usually do a screening visit and uh, see if they qualify and uh, they need to meet the eligibility criteria. We also have an adjudication committee which, is, which I am not part of, uh, three rheumatologists who will judge independently whether the person is uh, meeting the LGBT criteria.
0: Now, uh, what is the website where people can learn
1: more about this study? Clinicaltrials.gov. T- uh, that's the website of the Federal, uh, Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, where the trial is described in full detail. Anybody interested that can uh, Google Uh, If you Google uh, lupus or cysteine or my name or Syracuse, uh, the trials will certainly come up on the FDA website.
0: Now, if this trial goes the way you hope, is this a medication or treatment that would reverse lupus or just control
1: the flares? Uh, Lupus is a disease that uh, causes damage to various organs and the damage accumulates over time. The inflammation typically causes scarring. So once the organ scarred and inflammation occurred, uh, usually uh, recovery is not possible to the pre lupus level. So reversal of the disease is very, very difficult. It depends on the organ that's involved. For example, the liver has a high level of regeneration. So liver damage is potentially reversible Actually, the liver is also involved in lupus, but kidney damage is typically not reversible because the, the functional units of the kidneys called nephrons usually scar as a result of the inflammation, and those uh, functional units are usually lost. So, what one can hope is control the disease and prevent flares and further damage. Uh, there is no There is no intervention currently that even can be contemplated that would reverse disease at this time. So the best approach is to prevent disease and prevent flares and understand pathogenesis and diagnose and treat as early as possible.
0: Well, this sounds like a promising study. Thank you so much to Dr. Andres Pearl, a professor of microbiology and immunology and also Upstate's chief of rheumatology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Stay with Upstate's HealthLink On Air to learn how the pandemic is affecting refugees. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Six months into the pandemic, Onondaga County has counted more than 4,000 cases of COVID 19 among the population. One segment of that population is the refugee community, and Dr. Andrea Shaw is with me now to look at how this disease is impacting refugees. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Upstate who concentrates on refugee and global health. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Shaw.
2: Thank you so much Amber, happy to be here.
0: So please tell us which countries do the refugees come from that you care for in your practice?
2: So Upstate has been a primary care home for refugee families for many years. And certainly we've seen the waves of refugees uh, shift each year based on those that are accepted into our country and based on historical need. So I'd say the vast majority of the refugees we serve include those from Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the Middle East. And these shift every year, as I mentioned, but those who become part of our practice have been with us for now 20 years. Have there
0: been new arrivals during the pandemic or has all of that sort of been shut down with the borders being closed?
2: So certainly the pandemic put a slow to already slow numbers that dropped off after 2016. So as President Trump had come to office, our numbers of resettlement nationally went from nearly 100,000 in 2016 down to just over 20,000 in 2017, which is really an all-time low for us ever since we started resettling refugees. So we knew that 2020 was already going to be a low year with a, with a benchmark of about 20,000 that the U.S. would accept to resettle. But then things were quickly halted just like everything Around the country in March. And so in the last month, they've opened up. There were a few very high-risk families that did make it through uh, the resettlement process amidst the height of the pandemic. But now that the International Organization of Migration and the CDC have all of the all of the parameters in place to protect refugee families and ensure that they have safe travel and safe quarantine and safe acceptance upon arrival for all parties involved. They have reopened the doors and we do expect to see the 200 or so refugees total that Syracuse was slated to resettle uh, before the end of this year.
0: Wow. Okay. And then as you mentioned, some of your patients you've been caring for for 20 years or they've been part of the practice that long. So back in March, um, when it became evident that this novel coronavirus was a pandemic, how did you get the word out? And what was the message that you wanted to get out to the refugee community?
2: Yeah, so I think there were there were two approaches. One was, how are we going to get public health messaging that was changing quite rapidly, um, accurately delivered to a population that spoke well over we have well over 70 languages that the Syracuse City School District has documented that their students uh, speak regularly, and we probably have 20 languages that our refugee clinic serves on a regular basis. So how are we gonna meet the needs of all of these this diverse population and really make sure that health equity measures were in place so that they weren't left out amidst the pandemic? We knew that these families came from densely populated households where often large families lived and many of them were essential workers that were continuing to work in the capacity of healthcare and farming and cleaning and other essential worker positions. So we wanted to make sure we got the accurate information out and there were a number of different ways we did it. Um, There's a, a number of national resources that were available through CDC and other refugee centers of excellence that helped us deliver YouTube uh, video links and audio links with cartoons that described COVID-19, described the symptoms, described how to protect yourself, social distancing, wearing masks, how to keep your family safe, how to keep your home safe. And so this messaging was adapted in many different languages. And uh, for many of our refugees, they may have lived up to a decade, or an average family lives a decade in a refugee camp before coming. And many of the adults did not have opportunities to go to school. And so it's not uncommon that somebody might be able to speak three or four languages, but can't read or write in their own language or in their primary tongue. So these audio clips were really important and video clips were really important. And even for families that don't have re- reliable phone plans or reliable Wi Fi uh, broadband internet, there were many who still had access to data through WhatsApp and through a number of other informal platforms that. We reached out to a layer of health navigators who were culturally congruent, uh, former refugees themselves, who spoke many of these languages, who helped to disseminate this information and so that people were able to listen in their own language and meaningfully participate, ask questions, um, get their concerns heard, and help to find resources that their families could be supported by. So you really
0: had to get creative. I mean, you couldn't go to like traditional media media. So much for your message in order to reach your population, you had to get creative, it sounds like.
2: Certainly, um, given that English is the only language I'm fluent in, um, there are many of us who had to utilize a lot of resources available to us, but there's a lot of there's a lot of collaboration across refugee providers across the country. So I feel like there are a lot of people reaching for some of the same supports and a lot of centers came together and shared useful information and were really able to get the word out, which was great.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Andrea Shaw. She's a doctor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics who specializes in refugee and global health at Upstate. We're discussing how the pandemic is affecting refugee populations in Syracuse. Now, you described uh, people living in multiple family homes, um, working jobs in the essential services. Those can be sort of high-risk situations. So are are you finding our refugees at higher risk uh, for this pandemic?
2: So certainly back in March and April, I worked closely with our COVID transitions team, and we took all positive COVID tests from Upstate and worked closely to follow with telemedicine and support these patients through a really anxiety-provoking time. And in that mix of people, we found that over 20% of that population did not speak English as a primary language and were largely made up of refugees and immigrants. So every month, we meet with stakeholders in the community, primary care practices from across town that resettle refugees, including Upstate St. Joe's, Compassionate Family Medicine, and Syracuse Community Health Center, we come together with community stakeholders like the health department and the two main agencies that resettle refugees, Catholic Charities and Interfaith Works. And every month we get together to talk about issues related to health and access to care and challenges that the population is facing. And it's no surprise that our meetings amidst the late spring and early summer also around all surrounded COVID. And so one of the things that came forward was we've been doing a lot of this outreach. We've engaged culturally congruent refugee health navigators to participate in this public health outreach work. But testing is really hard to find. Testing is hard for this population to access, to understand and to follow up with given the language barrier. So one of the things we worked closely with Upstate on in the past few months was to develop a research protocol that allowed us to use the saliva swab PCR test developed by Dr. Frank Middleton at Upstate to pursue a research public health surveillance that basically opened up free saliva swab PCR testing to refugee and immigrant families in a trusted site on the north side that Catholic Charities uses as their main hub and interfaith works as well, for support services for refugees and immigrants. So over the last 10 weeks, word has gotten out amongst the refugee health navigators who have reached out to households who they themselves perceived themselves at risk and have voluntarily come forward for screening. And in the last 10 weeks, we've screened over 200 households and that's over 650 individuals that have come forward for surveillance screening. Given our initial population of non-English speakers who were infected with COVID, we expected to find a really high percentage amongst these largely essential worker households that lived in really dense settings. But to our surprise, we are very happy to report that there were six households of those over 200 that had initially tested positive on a saliva swab test. Now, remember this PCR test is very sensitive, it's very good for screening. It's the same style test that's been supported by screening by different universities in the SUNY system, as well as the health department's engagement with the Syracuse City school districts. So this assay helps us to detect any sign of the virus that might be there, and we follow up with a clinical nasal swab at Upstate. So of those almost 675 people who have tested so far, We've only had two that have been confirmed positive, which gives us a, a test positivity rate well under 1%, which is not what we were expecting to find, but we attribute a lot of this success to the work of the two resettlement agencies and the active outreach of these health navigators who've been promoting safety and knowledge about this disease in a way that people can truly understand it. It's not just about translating the words, it's about, helping people understand in a way that connects with them. So addressing it based on that individual household's need, which is gonna depend on a lot of different social factors, the educational background, their cultural perceptions, what myths they may have heard amongst the community, where they get their trusted health information. These things are all worked through as the health navigators connect with households and help to support and spread education and spread spread the real facts around COVID and how to keep people safe. So I think they've been doing a tremendous job. And I think we've seen a lot fewer asymptomatic positive patients or clients in in our community than we would have expected.
0: So have you found refugees willing to wear face masks? Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe that's doing a lot to help. And then we've talked with other experts about the importance of um, keeping your hands uh, washed frequently or hand sanitizer being used frequently. Uh, They must be putting these things into practice.
2: Absolutely. And I know that there was a lot we did to try to make sure that the supply was available at a time when store shelves were empty with things. The agencies both did a great job to help supplement that supply and get some of these cleaning supplies into people's homes, instruct them how to use them. So I think all of that was really helpful.
0: How have you gone about debunking some of the myths uh, that are out there and what, what are some of the most popular myths that you've had to debunk?
2: There's different themes that run in different ethnic communities. And from what was coming out from the resettlement agencies early on in the pandemic had a lot more to do around disbelief that COVID was real and that there may have been more uh, conspiracy theories at play at that time. I think as we've seen the shape of the COVID pandemic shift um, and the, the curve has leveled out over time and more people have come to know and understand it and get questions addressed, I think there's still there's still myths that are resurfacing around people concerned when we offer surveillance testing when they feel well, there's concern that the swab is actually going to infect them um, and that when people go for the test that the swab is actually causing the virus. So many of these things are debunked by trying to empower people to help them understand what tools are available. So our surveillance screening is a completely voluntary basis. There's about 400 households that these two agencies through their health navigators regularly reach out to with support and information. And those who feel they're at risk or have desire to know about the status of their household are offered this test free of charge. And we support them with all the follow-up and access to care that they might need. And I feel that that's a model that's unique and how we've adapted it to meet the needs of this population that have language barriers certainly as their first priority.
0: How has the pandemic changed the way you care for refugees in the office when they come for a, a medical visit?
2: So just as all of Upstate has adapted, we certainly have protocols in place for social distancing, for limiting the number of, of clients in the office. We've shifted a lot more of our follow-up to telemedicine when it's a, when it's possible. And that can add another layer of challenge when we actually try, have to get a video interface due to the limitations that the, that the individual refugee might have based on technology adaptation at home. Um, many times we, when we know clients or know patients well, we can follow up by phone calls with using an interpreter very easily and readily, and sometimes save time spent in the office because of that. So minimizing the face-to-face time is the goal when you can safely and still accomplish the care needs. So in the office, as I mentioned, the social distancing practices are in place. Each clinic, the pediatric clinic and the internal medicine clinic, has protocols in place for wearing face shields and masks. And I'd say that patients and staff are doing a tremendous job following this because people have been staying safe.
0: Well, that's good to know. Thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Andrea Shaw. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Upstate who specializes in refugee and global health. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. We'll hear how the homeless population has been impacted by COVID 19 next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith, this is HealthLink on Air. In the beginning of the pandemic, when health officials told us to limit our interactions with people, many of us retreated to our homes and stayed there sheltering in place. But what did people do if they didn't have homes? To find out, I'm speaking with Dr. David Lehman. He's a distinguished service professor of medicine at Upstate who brings medical care to the homeless through a street medicine program. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Lehman. Thanks very much. I've heard that people who are homeless have a higher risk of dying from COVID 19 if they become infected. And I wonder if that's true. Why is that?
3: Well, you have to understand the, the uh, background of the population. The actually so step back for a second from COVID and just think of the uh, rates of death on folks on the street. So, and this is a national figure, and Syracuse is right in the, right at this, this, the exact same figures. So approximately, once you, if a person remains on the street, let's say you see that person, you touch that person, I administer the person, I give them meds or uh, that, as soon as that contact is made, in your own mind, you have a, the, the average length of lifespan of that person remaining on the streets is two years and seven months, okay? And uh, this cuts across all age groups. Obviously, it'll be older and more, it will be shorter in older individuals, but this is a life-threatening condition if you want to think of it that way. Um, so, and those are because of the debilitating, uh, sleeping outside, the toll that it takes, the trauma that it has, lack of safety, the, uh, and then the substance use, alcoholism as well as psychiatric conditions that all set up these folks um, they don't have so they so they have that set up so just because of their debilitation living on the street per se would make them at a higher risk
0: and would that also go for someone who sleeps at a shelter but spends a lot of their time on right. the streets
3: so let's so let's shift now from the demographic of the the type of person I'm sorry, so like the the specific um, comorbid, let's say the comorbidities of the street person. So think of that as analogous to what you hear all the time in the news, diabetes and heart failure and that kind of stuff, making those, obesity, making those patients at a high risk for COVID. Now we're gonna talk about communicability or transmissibility. So in the shelters, there was a study out of Boston early on in the epidemic in uh, in March that in asymptomatic individuals there was about a thirty percent positive rate and then when they tested everybody in the shelter in Boston, one of the first uh, areas of the country that have a, a shelter program for homeless and um, and so that really you know you can think of it it's it's indoors it's close quarters et cetera and so that was a a big red flag early on.
0: You were quoted earlier in the year about your greatest fear being that the disease could gain a foothold in one of the shelters and spread onto the street. What has prevented that from happening in Syracuse at least?
3: Well, um, so you're right that it hasn't, uh, you know, my biggest fear was having sheltered, uh, the sheltered homeless who were in close quarters um, you know, and indoors, et cetera, and that would have been the the, the the spread could spread like wildfire. That's my concern. Early on in the pandemic, there was a, uh, a study out of Boston, which was kind of the grandfather of sheltered homeless treatment in in, in the United States. Found a thirty percent or so, I think around a thirty percent positivity rate, and they tested all patients, all uh, people in the shelters there in Boston. And that was kind of going off on that that was in March that was my concern here and all I can say is is that um, you know from a in a, in general, I think it was just New York State and what we did in Onondaga County is reflective of New York New York strong that um, we really got to it and distance masking all the different type of mitigation factors that are just important uh, we got on it and really cut the the rate overall here uh, march April. Uh, time period, May, and so, and then in a microcosm, the three shelters, the three adult shelters in Syracuse uh, 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 really got with it and, and uh, uh, was intensively screening, masking, mitigation factors, deep cleaning, et cetera, at that, and that really has not popped up as, a, uh, as an issue. Um, so I'm very proud of, in general, our, our citizens of, of Onondaga County as well as uh, proud of the shelters and what kind of hard work they did to, to have this rescue mission, Salvation Army, and Catholic Charities Men's Shelter.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. David Lehman about how the pandemic is affecting the homeless in Syracuse. Now, before the pandemic, you had teamed up with John Tamino from In My Father's Kitchen, and you were going with him when he delivers meals to the homeless so that you could provide medical care. Is that still going on?
3: Oh yeah, we've been doing this now. We'll be coming up on uh, three years next summer. So we've been going (laughs) up together. uh, So as a standard kind of issue, we still do that. I go out with him, I have a front loaded uh, med bag uh, of antibiotics, blood pressure medicines, inhalers uh, uh, for direct street care to provide medicines directly to folks on the street. And, uh, and then obviously I can link uh, with these guys to prescribe medicines at the pharmacies that they have. And about 75% of these guys have, have medical insurance. They just don't have a doctor. Um, so I'll treat people on the street um, directly uh, at, at, at the time that John gives them clothes and shoes and socks as well as food.
0: Well, are there changes in the way that you're doing that? Or how do you protect yourself when you're, when you're doing right. this now?
3: Right, right. So what we do is, and this was, uh, we had, we had a, I wouldn't say a spike, but I mean, I had much more, much more activity. And, uh, we had this conversation in April, for instance, March and April. I, uh, I was really working on with folks because I was testing more. I test people on the street if they're, if they're symptomatic, uh, uh, or if I get a request to be tested, uh, to test, I have in my bag, I have, uh, COVID test kits, and that, and I run the samples through Upstate uh, Laboratory. They prioritize homeless as a, as a high-risk group, so they have a we have a rapid turnaround time for that. And uh, there was an area uh, motel that the Department of, of uh, Social Services uh, would put people in who were tested either by me through the emergency department, either at Upstate or St. Joe's, one of the area hospitals. And once they're tested, they have to be quarantined while they're waiting results, I and mean, that's mandated. So, so they would put them these folks up in this motel, and then I would go out and make rounds every day on them, checking on them and seeing and waiting for their test results. So we had our peak; we had probably 15 people in the motel, uh, and that kind of dwindled down uh, as the testing became more rapid turnaround as well as the, you know, the mitigation factors, the stuff I talked about initially came into focus. So so I was using full down up, math, you know, the whole thing, the PPE stuff. I was doing that to protect myself uh, as I when I examined these guys and tested them.
0: So do, did the homeless population have a higher rate of infections than the general population? No,
3: no, no, no. Uh, and, in fact, like I said, they – it really didn't uh, pan out. Um, um, in my experience, um, I tested probably, oh my gosh, probably thirty or forty, something like that, and, they, and I had two positive.
0: Hmm.
3: In my well, own personal testing.
0: Are you advising uh, the uh, homeless people to wear masks? I mean, if they're outdoors, maybe Absolutely. that's not as necessary. Yep. but okay. Well, I mean, it's, it's. I think
3: it's. I think we should, you know, go with. Definite with the recommendations of the governor and, and, and uh, et cetera, these, so that everybody should be masking if they're in a group. Now, these guys will come up, and they'll try to you know, they'll, – they'll ask for money, and they are ask for supplies from street from the – if they're flying signs uh, on the street, they'll have interaction with passengers and drivers and cars and other people on the street, so they should be masked. We give out masks freely uh, to these guys.
0: And hand sanitizer is that also um, yep. Yep. recommended? Yep. Okay, And yep. the bag. In the in the bag that we have, I don't know
3: exactly how many that John has in a given time. Or you know, he has that part of the that's part of the process of giving out food and socks and other clothing. They'll have like a bag, a goodie bag with them, and that.
0: So, so as you've met with these, and it's mostly men, I I believe. Uh,
3: Eighty-five to ninety percent are men. Probably eighty-five percent.
0: What are their feelings about the pandemic? Do they are they were they aware of it? Uh, do they do they get their information to be aware of something like a pandemic?
3: I can't uh, uh, I can't say uh, where they get their information from. Um, I, a lot of these guys have cell phones. Um, a lot of them don't, a lot of them don't, I mean, they're not, it's not anywhere near the population at large having a cell phone. They don't have, you know, they, they didn't lose the, the, um, get stolen or they have they you other, know, they don't have a contract or whatever. So there's some, there's some cell phone usage and word of mouth, but I can tell you right up front, it was just like, you know, anybody else, they were very aware of the, of the pandemic. Um, we take their temperatures all the time and they're ready to do. I mean, they they really did know about it uh, as early as we did, and they were quite concerned, particularly in the shelters because of the close contact of, of that. So they got they got really engaged in in trying to trying to get with the program. So I was very proud of that.
0: So what instructions did you give them about if they were to say develop a cough or a fever? In between the time they were yeah. able to see you, what instructions did you tell them to follow?
3: Right, right. So they would contact us, and I would try to make, I, I outside of my time seeing them, I would try to arrange uh, me to test them and get a hold of the health department or the Department of Social Services and, and then put them in the shelter. That was not uh, feasible. Um, for instance, like the rescue mission had contacted me, during working hours and I would test a couple of them in the parking lot. Not too far after the the pandemic began, Syracuse Community Health Center began their testing, which is about a block and a half from Rescue Mission as well. And so that folks would go there and get tested. And as soon as they would get tested, they would get uh, transported to this motel. So, and and then the the third tier would be, yeah, you gotta go to the emergency department.
0: Okay. Well, as we uh, are getting into fall, um, do you have any more concerns about, I mean, more of these people will be coming into shelters, correct, with the cold weather?
3: Yes, yes, and I am concerned about that. I mean, that's, you know, I picked up uh, influenza in patients when I was testing in the shelters, um, and an influenza shot, the flu shots are just so important, and uh, that's kind of that's something I would have to think about in terms of how to get these. I would hope that the that's something we should think about with uh, testing. Uh, you know, getting their getting influenza vaccinations, and that's something the Department of Health made a big big push uh, late last year when there was a hepatitis A outbreak around the country in shelters, and that got going uh, for hepatitis A vaccination. So this similar. They they have a process, I'm sure, about influenza shots. I just don't know I don't know what that is in the shelters. Okay. But that's the one thing we could that could do. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about how people who are listening, uh how they can help. Are there tangible things that this population needs now?
3: Right. So if the weather gets colder, um uh John uh is has open, you know, is is open for donations. Uh the, uh, the, the donations should be in the, if, in the form of warmer clothes, sweatshirts, sweatpants, warm socks, boots, et cetera. Um, they're very eager to have those donations. And they should be new. We like to give a, uh, an impression to these guys that they're not second-class citizens. So, so it should be new, you know, new pants, new, new sweatshirts, new stuff. Uh, So that they get, you know, so because I can give them medical care, John can give them food, but really the more I get into this kind of work, it's just about providing dignity. And if we give people dignity and feeling that they matter, uh, any little way we can do that, um, then they can hopefully turn the corner with some of this and get get them on the road to housing and treatment for substance use, that kind of thing.
0: Would you say all adult sizes of clothing are needed? Yes, oh yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of, there's the gamut. <laughs> it really okay. is.
0: And by uh, John, you mean John Tamino from In My Father's Kitchen. Correct. And his website, inmyfatherskitchen.org, has some more details on there as well. Well, thank you so much to Dr. David Lehman. He's a Distinguished Service Professor of Medicine at Upstate, Taking Care of the Homeless. This is Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse with this week's selection.
4: Poet Jennifer Schomburg-Conkie lives in Tallahassee, Florida. Her poetry has appeared in Prairie Schooner, Play Yods, and Court Green. Her poem, Saint Jeannie of the Seventh Grade Origami, reminds us of simpler times when junior high students could make paper figures together that would, when folded, reveal the symbolic answer to a question a friend needs to hear. The notes unfolded keep the ghosts of their former selves—houses, swans, and squares. The paper, though yellowed, does not fall apart in my hands, like phyllo dough or the Dead Sea Scrolls. The purple ink still rich, the script still round. We loved each other enough to apologize—who remembers for what? All I have left is this paper I can't fold correctly even though the shapes are there for me to follow. Heads are wings, and wings are tails. Was this ever so easy?
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, why some people recovering from COVID 19 need physical therapy rehabilitation. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.